Welcome to Shots of Grace Radio, hosted by Pastor Steve Pearson of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah. At Shots of Grace Radio, it's our purpose to encourage you to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. Today, we're taking a break from our regular format to listen in on a Sunday sermon given by Pastor Steve at Redemption Hill Church. Now, get your Bible ready and follow along. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Ruth. Um, it is an incredible story about redemption. And I think, we'll, I think we'll pull a lot out of it. If you don't have a Bible, you can go onto our app. You can download it there. Um, a lot of times, you guys, when we uh, read the Bible, I think it's important to understand that, that a lot of the books, a lot of the content, they overlap each other. I think sometimes when we don't know, we pick it up and it can be kind of confusing because maybe we try to read it chronologically. We're like, oh man, there's this Genesis and there's Exodus and Leviticus and there's all these years. And what we don't understand a lot of times is much of it overlaps one another. So for example, the book of Acts is, covers a span of about 25 to 35 years, right? But in that span, you've got the majority of the New Testament books or letters that are fit in there. So for example, in Acts chapter 20, in verses two and three, the apostle Paul visits Greece and he writes the book of Romans in two verses, right? You've got the entire book of Acts, but he inserts it there. That's where he writes it. When you go to Acts 28, 16 through 31, 15 verses, He's in this place in Rome where he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Four books, all there in those first 15, in those 15 verses. So they're overlapping acts. And so it's not sequential. It's not something you're reading over, um, you know, kind of linear. When you get to Isaiah chapter 1, for instance, verse 1, Isaiah says that his ministry actually spans four generations of kings. So there's four kings of Judah that the entire book of Isaiah is inserted into. One of those kings lives 52 years. So that gives you an idea of how long he ministered and where his book is inserted along with Amos and Jonah. So you have all these books that are overlapping during these periods of time. Well, when you come to the book of Ruth, you have the same thing. In Ruth chapter one, verse one, we'll read the whole thing in a second. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so the four chapters out of Ruth are really taken right out of the book of Judges or the time of the book of Judges and more specific, somewhere out of the beginning of the book of Judges. And the reason we know that is because there are three main characters in the book of Ruth, one of them, his name is Boaz. And Boaz had a mom, and the mom was Rahab the harlot. In Matthew's genealogy in chapter one, he tells us that Rahab the harlot, who lived during Joshua's days, you remember, Joshua's book is about 20 years long, and he comes into the promised land, receiving the baton from Moses. They go in to spy out this land, and they meet Rahab, and Rahab is the one who throws the scarlet cord out her window, and she's saved as a result. And so Rahab lived during the time of Joshua. And since Rahab lived during the time of Joshua and the book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua, we know that Ruth is at the beginning of the book. And here's why that's important. Because the book of Judges begins by telling you and I the spiritual climate of their day. And here's what it says. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the backdrop 
of Ruth. There's no king in Israel. Whenever there isn't a leader, right, in a nation, such as was the case once Joshua died, the people do whatever they want to do, right? And when you have people that do whatever they do, want to do, when you have a culture that every person decides what's right in their eyes and they practice it, it infringes upon the other. And we call that chaos, right? When everybody thinks that their own morality is good to go and they're practicing, at some point, you have a clash of worldviews. And I know people like to believe or like to think that, hey, there's this cool little thing called coexist and everybody can get along. The problem is, is if an immoral person chooses to implement their morality and impress it upon society and others don't want it, you got a clash, And so when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, which is exactly what you have happening today, by the way, everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. They are thinking how they want to think. There's no rule of law. We live in a post-Christian America where God's laws and God's commands are pushed to the side. And now it's what every person believes in their own eyes. If you have a view of love, practice you. You do you, you do you, and we'll just all get along. And that doesn't work in a society. And so that's a part of the tension that you feel happening today. Just like in the book of Judges, everybody wants to do their own thing. But we're told something else as well. In Judges 2.12, it says that the people abandoned God and they served the gods of the people around them. It wasn't just that God wouldn't, they wouldn't conform to the moral, you know, uh, traditions or the moral demands of God, but they were doing the other thing. They were worshiping the gods of the, of the countries around them. They were succumbing to them. It wasn't that they were just not doing what God wanted them to do. They were worshiping other gods and they were grabbing them as their own, and they were, it ended up shaping their conduct as Joshua warned them right before he died, watch out, these people, you don't understand how powerful their ways are. You don't understand how they think. They will seduce you. And that's exactly what happened. And so one of these groups were called the Moabites. They were, they're in what would be called modern-day Jordan. You guys, the Moabites were wicked. There's no way of putting it. Well, that's not loving, Pastor. The Moabites were wicked and they were evil. There is such thing as evil people. Did you know that? There is such thing as wickedness. Not everybody is good. And if you have a culture that's ingrained in wickedness, it produces the same. And that's who the Moabites were. The Moabites began as an incestuous group. If you remember, when Lot was coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the angel was dragging him out, In Genesis chapter 19, his wife looked back and ended up staying back permanently, right? You can read the story, but he had to drag Lot and his daughters out. Once they got out, God destroyed the city. Well, the the girls grew up there, so they didn't know there was any men left in the world. And so they're sitting one night around the campfire thinking, man, that's it. There's no more men in the world. And so they come up with a wicked, evil plan. The firstborn says to the secondborn, there ain't any men left, so let's get, our drunk, let's get our dad drunk and let's go sleep with him. So the first does it. She gets Lot drunk, she goes and she lays with him. The second does the same a couple nights later. The firstborn, the, the, the male born to the firstborn girl or daughter, his name was Moab. He was the father of the Moabites. And the one born to the second born, the, the, the boy born to the second born, his name was Ben-Ami, and he was the father of the Ammonites. They were wicked. They started off wrong. 
They were the ones when Moses was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness and he came up to the land of Moab. Balak, the king of Moab, came up and said, well, I need to find a way to curse the children of Israel because there are a lot of them and they're going to smoke us. And so he goes and finds a prophet named Balaam to curse the people. The problem is every time Balaam opens his mouth, he doesn't curse the children of Israel. He actually blesses them. And so Balaam comes back to Balak and he says, listen, there ain't no way you're going to get God to curse his people. He just ain't going to do it. But here's what you can do. You can get his people to curse themselves. And so what did Balak, the king of Moab, do? In in Numbers 25, he sent the women of Moab. The women of Moab were told to seduce the men of Israel. And they did sexually worshiping the God of Baal Peor and brought a snare on the entire nation of Israel. Folks, the Moabite women were immoral. There ain't no getting around it. They were an immoral culture that used their bodies to worship their false gods. And the reason this is important is because as you're going to see, Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Moabite woman. She grew up in the culture she understood, she was familiar with the, with the Moabite immorality that was rampant in her country. Now, I don't know, I doubt that she participated in it, because you're going to see as we go through this, she was an upstanding woman with great moral character. The point is, she grew up there, so she was familiar with it. She knew what was going on. That's the backdrop as we read Ruth chapter 1. So Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1, read it with me. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Ahimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And by the way, those were names in the Hebrew mean sick and tired. <laughs> so Malon was sick and Chilion was tired. Um, That's messed up, parents. Anyway, um, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Ahimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These These two took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there for about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-laws to return to the country from Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in Bethlehem with bread. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "'Go, return each of you to to her mother's house.'" May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. In other words, go remarry and carry on your life. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? 
No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, that's Orpah, and to her gods, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And where you are buried is where I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and more so if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came back to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women, and the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not, call me, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley festival. About a year ago, I was talking to Pastor Robert. Some of you don't know him. He's one of our outside elders, um, one of my mentors. And I was asking him a question about some decisions that I had made several years ago. And what I was asking him was, in hindsight, do you think that the decisions I made were wrong? And I don't know if you guys can relate to that, where you'll make a decision in the present, and then two or three years goes by, you see how that decision works out or pans out, and then you look back and you go, man, I think I might have made a wrong decision. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? So I asked, I asked and if you don't, you'll, you'll find out at some point in your life. <laughs> so I asked Pastor Robert, I said, was I wrong, you know, in making these decisions? And here's what he said to me. I'll never forget it. He, it brought me a lot of relief. He said, good grief, brother, and that was how he always shared things. Um, he started everything, good grief, brother, when he wanted you to cut yourself some slack and have a little grace on yourself, right? He said, good grief, brother, um, you made a decision with the information that you had at the time. You made a decision with the information you had at the time. You guys, nobody makes decisions with the information that hindsight provides. Did you know that? You, you, you don't make a decision in 2019 knowing what will happen in 2023. If we did, there wasn't one decision we'd ever make that would bring calamity or heartache into our life, right? The very things that God uses to refine us, by the way, right? You and I make decisions, hopefully we pray about them, but we make decisions based on what's happening in the moment. And so we can't hold ourselves accountable to something that comes as a result of a decision that we made five years later. You guys, I gotta believe that if when Naomi made the decision to go with her family to Moab, I got to believe that if she could look 10 years down the road into her future and she could see that she would lose her husband, that she would lose both of her sons and she would be left with two Moabite women who have nothing in common with her way of worship, I got to believe she would have never went. She would have stayed behind. Now, Granted, and we'll see this as the story unfolds, who she would return with is extravagant 
she would return with the grandmother of King David who would be in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You couldn't tell her that then. But the point is, is there was nothing but heartache in her 10 years there in Moab. And the truth is, there are no guarantees as a Christian. Did you know that? You have no guarantees when you choose a life of faith. I know sometimes people like to paint the life of faith as you trust God and everything will be great. God will just deliver you this wonderful, beautiful iced cake called your Christian life. It'll taste wonderful and look wonderful until you die and go to heaven. But the truth is there's no guarantees for you that as a Christian, you will in fact experience heartbreak and pain. You will experience times where you don't know what to do with the pain where it just seems like all you do is sit with it. You won't have any clue which way to go at times. You will experience times where you feel like God has abandoned you. That is a part of the Christian walk. Now, despite how I may feel, doesn't change the reality of what God says is true, that he doesn't leave us or he doesn't forsake us. But the reality is, guys, the life of faith isn't any guaranteed. Guarantees, you're not guaranteed that you're gonna live to be 80 years old. There's nobody that guarantees you that at all. You, you, you could find out next week that you got three months to live. There's no guarantees of a long life. There's no guaranteed that guarantees that your husband won't cheat on you or your wife won't cheat on you. Pastor Steve, this is such a downer. <laughs> the point is this. Sometimes people become Christians with expectations that they have put on their faith. And when they experience a reality that's something different, they're quick to get up and run. There are no guarantees except one, that God will never leave you or never forsake you, that God will forgive you in that, never leaving you. He'll forgive you of your sins, and you are promised another life. Now, he promises you an abundant life, but, you know, who, who gets to define abundance? You? God, God could define abundance a very different way than you, within the pain, within the hurt. You're guaranteed another life in Christ because he died for your sins here. So Christians ought to be, to some extent, a great extent, living for what is very much around the corner, very quick. This is a bleep on the screen. And yes, you have motherhood and you have fatherhood and you have career and you have all those things in life that are fun, but this is not forever. It's coming to an end. And if things keep going as rapidly as they are, you might hear a trumpet sooner than later. But there's no guarantees. Chapter one begins by telling us that there was a famine in Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem comes from two Hebrew words, the word house and the word bread. In other words, it means the house of bread. And the irony is that in the house of bread, there was no food. Isn't that interesting? There was an expectation that God would take care. Now, remember one of the byproducts of disobeying God, which is what this season in Judges was. They were rampant, just totally rejecting God. One of the byproducts was famine. God told them in the covenant he made with them, if you reject me, not only will you not be protected, not, will you, not only will your crops not be protected, you'll experience famine. And so it's interesting, in the house of bread where the God is supposed to provide, there's no bread. And so what do they do? they leave. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I don't know that their decision to leave, I don't know going to Moab was the right or wrong thing. Here's what I'm saying. They had information at the time. There's no bread. So the obvious thing is, let's go to Moab. The problem is this. Jews don't go to Moab. The Moabites were the enemies of the Jews. 
there was nothing good in Moab. The worship of Chumash, the worship of Baal Pazor. You guys, the women were, were the, the, the men were ranked, the women were immoral. There was nothing for a person of God in Moab. So why is this family going there? Shortly after they arrived there, Elimelech's two sons found Moabite women and married them. One was Orpah, and the other, we're told, was Ruth. The two sons of Naomi, sometime within that 10-year period that they were there in Moab, died. And so Naomi decided it's time to go back home. There's nothing left for me here. A bunch of foreign gods, a bunch of immorality, and neither a husband nor kids. Her heart was broken. So she told her daughter-in-laws, you stay here. You stay with your people. I'm going back. And in verse 14, Orpah agreed. She kissed her mother-in-law, and then she went back into Moab, and she became, became a really rich talk show host who was a billionaire. <laughs> Oprah is their name. There's actually a story behind that, but Oprah was supposed to be named Orpah, and they got it wrong on the birth certificate, and so it came out Oprah. And this is a true story. Um, I'm not making it up. And then the mom was just like, all right, cool, we'll go with it. So anyway, but she was supposed to be Orpah. Side note, probably no, no value in your life whatsoever, um, but that's okay. <laughs> so Orpah stays, or Orpah goes back to, um, back to Moab, and we're told Ruth clings to Naomi. Naomi told Ruth, follow your sister-in-law. Go back, she said, to your people and to your gods. Go back to your life. You know, there's nothing I can give you. And then Ruth responds with her famous words, don't urge me to leave you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more so, if anything but death parts us. You guys, I don't know what happened in the 10 years between these two women. All I know is there was a relationship between these two women that didn't exist between Naomi and Orpah. Something happened. I don't know if it was the late night coffees that they had and the conversations that they had that Naomi, a person of faith, was imparting to Ruth. All I know is this, you guys, a Moabite woman's life was changed because of her interaction with this woman of faith. Whatever she saw in Naomi, Whatever it was in her character, in her words, you guys, it was powerful. It was powerful enough to reach through all that Ruth had grown up with, all that she had knew. Whatever she saw in her interactions or heard in her interactions with Naomi, you guys, it was enough to reach through a lifetime of pagan worship. It was enough to reach through the upbringing in, a more, in, in an immoral culture. And listen, it was enough to reach through the ingrained hatred that Moabites had for Jews. This was Ruth's life. But she had an encounter with a person who knew God. And as a result, her new position was, I ain't leaving you. I ain't going anywhere except for where you go, and your God is going to be my God. And listen, there is no way on God's green earth that a Moabite woman had a chance of being pulled out of that predicament. There is no way unless in God's sovereignty, he used the fears of a Jewish family to flee their home in pursuit of sustenance and had their life collide with Ruth's. She wasn't getting out of Moab. There was no way. The, de the deck was stacked against her. 
from the immorality growing up, from the worship of foreign gods. There was nobody to help her because Jews didn't go to Moab unless there was a famine in the house of God and God sovereignly moved a normal family, not kings, not queens, not normal nobles, a noble family to intersect with the life of Ruth. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Shouts of Grace Radio with Pastor Steve Pearson. We hope that you've been encouraged to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. If you've been encouraged in your journey following and learning more about Jesus, we would love to hear from you. You can visit us online at shoutsofgraceradio.com. At ShoutsOfGraceRadio.com, you can listen to all of our episodes, share them online with your friends, and find out more about Pastor Steve. Shouts of Grace is an outreach of Redemption Hill Church in Eagle Mountain, Utah. Thank you again for joining us on today's show. And from all of us at Shouts of Grace, it is our prayer that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.